Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review, the show about the musicians we're obsessed with and the albums you need to know right now. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor-in-chief, and today we're going to talk about new music from Wiseblood and Dream Unending. They're both playful and immersive artists whose new records were made during lockdown in the pandemic. And if you aren't familiar with them yet, these records are the perfect gateway into late fall and winter. A great soundtrack for, let's say, an existential spiral under a gravity blanket. Yeah, like like you said, fun. Yeah, fun. Fun, playful. <laughs> Here with me now is Jeremy Larson, our reviews editor. Jeremy, how you doing? You know, I'm pretty good. Look, one of these bands we're going to talk about is a doom metal duo. The other is a dreamy chamber pop project. You'd think Wise Blood is the doom band <laughs> and Dream Unending is the dreamy chamber pop project, but you'd be wrong. <laughs> And I'm excited for our guest today, associate editor Sam Sadomsky, who has both interviewed Wiseblood for Pitchfork more than once and also happens to be our resident metal expert. So we'll be back with him in just a minute. So we're back with Sam Sadomsky. Hey, Sam. Hey, what's up, friends? We're here to talk about an artist that is a Pitchfork favorite, Wise Blood, who is the musician Natalie Maring, and her latest album, And the Darkness Hearts Aglow. Like, we are big fans, but for those who might not be familiar with her work, what do they need to know, Sam? To me, Natalie is one of the best songwriters going right now. Mm-hmm. I think she works on a scale that I find really uncommon in indie music or just singer-songwriter stuff in general. And she's kind of on this roll right now where her records, they keep getting bigger and grander and speaking more specifically to these huge political, social issues. She emerged from drone and noise scenes and during like the late 2000s, early 2010s, her music had this rougher, darker aura to it. Over the course of the 2010s, her music sort of softened and became a lot more melodic, and she really came into her own as a singer. On her new record, her vocals are maybe the main draw to me. I think there's some really incredible vocal performances on it. That shift sort of happened with this record, Front Row Seat to Earth, in 2016. These album names... Just, every single one is so good. It really reminded me of the songwriter Judy Sill mm-hmm. at the time, which I think that Judy Sill's name gets thrown around a lot with singer-songwriters, but I don't think anyone quite conjured that same cosmic 
mystical vibe the way Wise Blood did. And it peaked on this record in 2019 called Titanic Rising. That was a total breakthrough for her. I think it was one of the best records of that year, one of the best records of that decade. It was a really melodically rich album and it was a really prescient album. Like just a year later with the pandemic would kind of become, you know, things everyone was confronted with on a huge scale. Let's talk about this last record in particular, because I do feel like Titanic Rising was the best new music. It did break through in a way that kind of made Wiseblood an indie star. And she's just a stunning performer. But this feels like she's entered her own, right? Like she's like formed what she will be going forward. And with that said, like this is the second album of a trilogy, what was the expectation of this record? What does it feel like to get new Wise Blood music after a pandemic has passed between this and the last one? Sometimes I personally have uh, hangups about, for lack of a better term, lush production. And I think sometimes it, uh, bands. What does that or- mean? You like it raw. <laughs> I do like it, raw. like it raw. I like yeah. plug it into the <laughs> mixing board, baby. Um, <laughs> There is an old cliche in sort of in pop music of like bring in the strings, right? Like it's sort of like what the Beatles started doing and sort of what a lot of bands start to do when they reach the middle of their career. And they're like, what should we do now? Sometimes the answer is like, well, there's a string quartet that's working down at (laughs) Warner Brothers Studios. I guess we can bring them over in. So I think sometimes I get a little itchy when I hear that in Mm -hmm, music. mm -hmm. Um, Things that sound like beautiful and rich. I don't have a problem with beauty and richness. Um, uh, I'm not a sociopath. But but I think I, I sometimes have a problem. Uh, again, it's not a problem. It's just like a little bit of an itch when I think a music is trying to pull me to reach a certain emotional climax. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes artists or producers will use a string quartet to do that mm-hmm. as like a you know, warp zone to mm. feeling things. You just want an album that has a, a disclaimer on the top. There were no string quartets in the making of this record. <laughs> there are no weepy <laughs> violins. Uh, no, but so so look, so when I heard It's Not Just Me, It's yeah. Everybody, which is a, more of that kind of spare, like Carol King vibe to it, I was really drawn in by that because I think the focus was on her melodies and her songwriting, which is wonderfully spare. She has this quote that she likes to use in interviews, which is actually a quote from Stanley Kubrick, where she says she likes to appeal to the subconscious more by saying less. And I think that's what a lot of her lyrics do. Mm -hmm. So there is a kind of stoicism and a simplicity and a concision in that. And with It's Not Just Me, It's Everybody, I was like, wow, Like I really grabbed on to it. I got to listen to the rest of this album. Sam, having spent some time with her, I'm wondering if you can give us some context into what she intended from this record and like what were her influences and what was she trying to create? There's something funny about the idea of her making this record during the pandemic because I've noticed this thing with like pandemic records where it's like 
the things that speak most directly to the experience of it were almost things that were written before it or things that aren't overtly inspired by it, where it's like if Titanic Rising came out a year later, everyone would think it was a pandemic record. Right, right. It's it's like a lot's going to change and Wild Time, like these songs that are about living through. In retrospect, she described that record as like an alarm sounding, like that was her intention for it and that's what it ended up kind of representing. And I think her goal with this record was to write something like more hopeful about sort of the problems that that record addressed, which obviously she didn't end up doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that for her was why she wanted it to be a trilogy so that she could eventually get there because I find this record to be pretty bleak at times. And I think her experience of the pandemic itself was pretty bleak. Um, Mm -hmm. Titanic Rising was this huge breakthrough that she had spent a really long time building toward. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of people heard that as like the first Wise Blood album, despite the fact there was pretty much a full decade of music building up to it. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and she had these really big tour dates planned and all of that kind of came to a halt. And she also was saying how she had that early COVID at the very beginning of the pandemic before people really knew how to mm-hmm. diagnose the symptoms and treat it and stuff. So. I think the record really addresses a lot of that yeah. uncertainty and darkness, and but in a way that isn't total chaos or depravity. That song, The Worst Is Done, I think really speaks uh-huh. to like <laughs> every single period where it felt like the pandemic was like over only for another wave to hit and us to realize that like we were nowhere near over. Okay, so I got a question for you. It's 2022. We're sort of getting the, maybe not the last trickle of, but certainly, you know, it seems to be the dwindling number of quote unquote pandemic albums, albums recorded at the pandemic that deal with themes of the pandemic. Where are you guys at with listening to this while keeping the pandemic in the back of your mind while it was being made? Does that does that register with you? Or do you just sort of listen to this as like, This is just an album like any other album. I mean, I think that every new album is a pandemic album because we're still in the pandemic. But also, that doesn't mean that like the malaise or the tensions of the world or the anxiety of our present state has gone away. And I also think something great about this record and something that I am very charmed by with Wise Blood on this record and her previous record is that This isn't necessarily just about the pandemic. It's about the climate crisis. It's about the way that we interact with one another. It's about losing our sense of self and like trying to find that. And I mean, Sam, I think you can probably speak to what she's trying to address with this record. There's something I admire about her songwriting where, like Pusha said, it's never really just about one thing. And I think for her writing about intimate things. Like, I think there's a lot of breakup songs on this Mm -hmm. record that also kind of zoom out to be about larger things. And I think the songs that are about larger things are also kind of about intimate issues and things that's just like a person in a room looking at themselves in a mirror. I definitely hear what you're saying, Jeremy, with like fatigue about records that are trying to like 
embrace this moment and like speak for all of us and some of the most eye-rolly stuff that's happened in the past two years has been stuff made with that intention. The stuff that resonates the most for me is stuff like this record that feels more like one person speaking for their own experience. Mm -hmm. um, uh, stuff like that to me always resonates the most because of her sense of humor and because of her sensitivity as a writer. That's sort of always the zone Wise Blood is in. There's a sense of earnestness and like grappling with overwhelming ideas and the state of the world and wrangling these massive issues in kind of a fuller sound like they're like as ambient moments on this. There's like a very intense lush sound um, that accompanies a lot of her songwriting. But then lyrically, she can be very deadpan and very funny. And I think she's good at doing that while avoiding being cynical or sounding ironic ever. Like this kind of an issue I sometimes have with these California types. Like in the... <laughs> like, these <laughs> California types. <laughs> like, yeah, spoken like an East Coaster through and through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like in the Randy Newman, Harry Nelson school mm -hmm, songwriting, mm -hmm, there's sometimes this yeah. tendency toward like... Uh, sort of preaching from the mountaintop, like assuming the voice of the everyman only to squash it. And with her, I, I don't really get any of that, which is sort of why I made the Judy Sill comparison too, because it's like Judy Sill songs sound like folk songs, but if you listen to the words, it, they're almost like metal lyrics, like there's dragons and like they're really um, psychedelic and she doesn't really draw your attention to the weird juxtapositions she's making in her music and... Wiseblood kind of does the same thing where I remember the first time I heard the song of hers on Front Row Seat to Earth where she says YOLO, uh -huh. which like <laughs> yeah. I just, I'd never heard in a, like an indie <laughs> song, let alone one that was so beautiful and let alone one on a record that was so overtly channeling sounds from the 70s. I think she's very aware of what she finds funny and what the how like the people listening to her music speak the song when she's like, I'd give anything to hang, mm -hmm. which she says in <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, Hearts Aglow. I'd give anything to hang. I've been without friends or I've just been working for years and I stopped having fun. Like I literally checked the lyric book to make sure she said hang. You know, because it's just like so conversational as opposed right. to, I don't know, like the gravity of the scenario she's describing. Talking about her lyricism, it's interesting because I think she threads this needle between placing her songs sort of in the setting of an emotion versus like setting them in an actual like time and place. Like a song like Grapevine, like that is a song about like a specific area of a highway that leads into... LA, like from the north, it opens with this couplet that I think is so beautiful. She says, If a man can't see his shadow, he can block your sun all day. He can make you small, he has the power to take his love away. So sometimes it, it takes me a little bit longer to sort of fall into. Uh, a platitude or an I or just a simple idea about love or a relationship 
so it took me a while hearing that song several times before I took a listen to that line and it just sort of struck me and kind of like <laughs> really arrested me for how beautiful and how sad it was. It's also kind I, of funny though, because it's like Groundhog Day, like you can't see your shadow, so they block your sun all day. Oh, like, see, there we go. See, now it's layers. <laughs> it's layers mm-hmm. and layers to that thing. That's There's really a lot like that in that song. I love that song because it's kind of like an old folk song a little bit, mm-hmm. but like in her way that is also pretty hyper modern and kind of surreal. She's really just so good at capturing like millennial malaise, right? Like I want to be surrounded by things that are beautiful, be okay with falling into a cliche, you know, I think there's a line on the record that's like, I don't know where you end and I begin. I mean, the I think biggest, it's the last line on the record, yeah. Literally the cliche of all cliches. But then also just being like, we are, that's what we are, you know? Mm. Like, that is what builds universal pop music and also what builds, like, universal connectivity. It's like, we all have these basic-ass feelings. You know, even just like hearing that she was releasing this record that was the second in a trilogy after Titanic Rising, I think I felt a little worried about the weight of trying to follow up that record with another thing that is speaking to all these huge issues. So the first one's Alarm, the second one's Hope, and the third is Well, I think the way it's going to end up is like the first was Alarm, second is like Living Through It, and third is going to be her attempt at Hope. I hope she doesn't use as many strings. You know what I'm talking about, guys? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I'm really kidding about that. And with that, we have another record to talk about in just a minute, and we'll do that after the break. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, we're back, and Sam has another record to introduce to us. It's a dreamy metal record that is unlike anything that I've heard before. Sam, it's been a really interesting and creative year for metal, right? Yeah, especially in like the death metal realm. I've spent so much of this year listening to that kind of music and those bands. Yeah, I mean, you introduced me to Two Mold, which is sick. And now, like, uh, one of the guys from Two Mold is part of Dream Unending. So can we talk about, like, how Dream Unending formed and, like, what they formed out of? Yeah, so it's these two guys, Derek Vela, who's one of the guitarists in Two Mold. I've loved that band for a long time. And something I always admired about them was the way they would weave non-metal influences into their music or even just acknowledge those types of bands. Like, I saw 
them play once and Derek was wearing like a Keith Jarrett cut off t-shirt with the sleeves cut off. ECM represent. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, also their music was amazing and super heavy and super cool. And each record they put out was kind of bigger and weirder and darker than the one before it. And then the other guy is Justin DeTore, who plays in a ton of bands. I guess most notably innumerable forums. The band started with a conversation between them about starting something that was not a death metal project because I think both of them were into a lot of similar music outside that genre and they wanted to collaborate on something different. Their first record was Tide Turns Eternal, which came out last year. And there's a great review of it on our site by Sam Goldner. That record really blew me away last year. I was so into it. There was just something so... um, crushing about this record and so emotional because with metal i think when people are trying to subvert it or open up its borders there's a few things that are just the go-to things to blend with metal there's that record death heaven put out last year that Mm -hmm. was basically a shoegaze record Mm -hmm. and it was really tight and daring but um i think when i hear stuff that's brought into metal or really any genre even with wise blood like when i heard her say yolo I think I get excited to hear someone do something that feels totally novel or just against the grain of what other people are doing. And I think that's pretty important with Dream Unending. I know both of them love Bruce Hornsby, which is definitely not a name you see float around interviews with metal musicians much. Um, yeah, he doesn't play St. Vitus all that much. Um, <laughs> no, he should, though. <laughs> uh, I, I love what you're saying because I, that really gets me, too, is, is that when you're listening to something, there's that sort of lizard brain, like, I also recognize this, that sort of ticks off in your head and, like, that bikes sort of a love for what they're doing. But even just hearing, like, a curiosity about other music and hearing music that's in conversation with things that you might not expect it to, like... Oh, well, I do, going back to my my gateway to it, I think that was really important to me, you know, like, on Monoliths and Dimensions, the Sun record, like, hearing the concerto stuff on the last track like it was just a way of opening it up and like showing you the novelty of it the innovation of it i think also with death heaven that was something that made them such a breakthrough was that record sunbather hearing guitar tones that sounded more like my bloody valentine and like metal being pretty in a way that most people hadn't heard it or wider audiences hadn't heard it so with this new dream unending record are they moving forward? Are they like getting bigger? What are they doing differently on this record? Yeah, well, I really liked their last record too, but I definitely, this this one feels like a breakthrough to me. I will say when I first got the promo, it was one long song, at, which is how I listened to it on like on repeat. I, I just like would listen to it all the way through. I think there's something really sweet-like and immersive and so fully realized to it that the vision feels very complete to me. And I kind of can't listen to it without listening to the whole thing. I love the way it flows and I love just the structure of it with these two like massive epic metal songs at the beginning and end and then the kind of like valley of quieter, shorter pieces in the middle the melodies i love listening to the whole thing because like my favorite moment is like the last three minutes of the record 
at the end of ecstatic rain the tempo goes from you know 30 beats per minute to 60 and it sounds like it sounds like fireworks are going off even when just the tempo is just sort of like a slightly little faster like a double double time for dream unending is just sort of every normal band's just sort of (laughs) mid-tempo rocker but it's Uh so thrilling like when it comes in The guitars on this record remind me of listening to Metallica's and Justice for All. Like there's a lot of these sort of twin guitar solos that that kind of come in and out. And I hear what you're saying with like the Metallica thing. Other times the guitar kind of reminds me of like Pat Metheny. Like it's so <laughs> melodic and ECM. That's two ECM shadows. Yeah, two ECM references. Yeah. In well, one. <laughs> yeah, it's just like beautiful to me in a way that feels pretty unique among metal releases. Sounds like a score. If these guys were a little more pretentious, they would name this as like a suite and have like a little no, Roman numerals does. after everything. But I totally. Think- yeah, which is what I thought it was going to be when I got that one track promo. This is more of a pandemic album than the Wise Blood album in my mind. Mm. That might be due to the writing process of them doing it remotely and collaboratively. Right, you said they never met each other at all during the recording of this record? That's Yeah, crazy. and they've definitely never played a show together. You know, I was a big fan of the Don Richard, Spencer Zahn album, Pigments, which was also two musicians creating something that sounded like classical or choral like movement in three parts. And they had never been in the same room, but were trying to exercise these feelings and these ideas that were experimental through Zoom. In the end, it became something that felt like expansive definitely so this to me feels like like a different exorcism of the idea of being alone and in the pandemic yeah it's definitely very solitary introspective music which people have had a lot of time for even just the idea of music inspired by like dreams and dreaming in a very earnest way an unending dream if you will that's right Derek is credited on the album as Architect of Dreams, and Justin is credited mm-hmm. as the bridge between two worlds. Let's um, go. Yeah. Did either of them take acid during the making of this <laughs> album? <laughs> yeah, Sam, what's like, you know, we talked a little bit about some of the textures, some of the different things coming into this record. What's sort of one of your favorite moments? The only single that was released from it, which is Secret Grief, which is like one of the softer tracks in the middle of the record. There's this one part where these really muted horns come in that is awesome. A muted horn, muted trumpet reminds me of Talk Talk, I think like... Um, oh, later, yes. later, a talk talk. It will always like remind me of that kind of airy, icy sound. Yeah, and I think they're really specifically conjuring the Blue Nile with the use mm. of them here. The beginning of the Blue Nile song, "Let's Go Out Tonight," with those kind of like slow motion drums and the horns over it. I just want to shout out minute fourteen twenty of <laughs> Ecstatic Rain. You, you got to stick around for the ending. You know, like. 
you ever see those videos on TikTok that's like says watch to the end and you're like, no, fuck, I'm I'm definitely not watching to the end of this. Listen to the end of this record and get to the last two minutes of Ecstatic Rain and it will be worth your time. It's like an incredible moment. Incredible to describe a, a metal album as something recommended if you like Talk Talk. Keith Jarrett. Pat Metheny. Yeah. Bruce Hornsby. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's definitely metal references for it, like I was saying with like Anathema. And I think like another comparison I would make is to a record like Disintegration by The Cure, which is uh, also one of my really... favorites, one of my all time favorites. Mm-hmm. Me too. Which is also kind of a psychedelic record in its way, mm-hmm. but it's also a record that's successful because it just really communicates an emotion, like a really specific that's emotion. That's an interesting comparison. Like all you really need to listen to is like the first 10 seconds of the first song on Disintegration and you're like, oh, I know how this feels. <laughs> right. Like, maybe like walking through the snow and being really sad and lonely. <laughs> and Emphasis on sad and lonely. Like, I mean, it's... <laughs> Oh, man. Can I leave us with a question? Um, Because so much about both of these records are about a mood and really succumbing to the feeling or the emotion that is present within both, right? What is your ideal listening scenario for the Wise Blood record and or the Dream Unending record? Both of them inside of a velvet coffin. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I actually have a velvet coffin. Do you sleep like Nosferatu? <laughs> I asked. <laughs> something I really admire with both records and I think makes this Wise Blood record unique in her catalog is the amount of space on it. Every song is given kind of the opportunity to like extend into itself and like luxuriate and kind of dissipate. So for a record like that, I think, yeah, that's just like a lying on your back, blasting it kind of record, Mm. maybe a road trip record, Mm -hmm. Um, dream on ending. I mean, I've taken a lot of walks listening to that record. Yeah, I've listened to it before bed. (laughs) In addition to listening to this in a velvet coffin, I think these are both very good, like autumnal albums, good like leaves crunching under feet albums. Mm -hmm. They're also good gazing out the window albums. Mm -hmm. I think they both, Mm -hmm. because I don't think there's any song on any of these albums that is a tempo above like 70 beats per minute. So I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of uh, um, kind of slow your heart rate down, kind of sink into a vista or a landscape or your neighbor's kitchen, whatever, (laughs) whatever it may be. All right. Well, let's get cozy. It's cozy season. Lock yourself in your existential crisis and vibe the hell out. Cuddle up to some doom metal. Thank you, Sam, for coming on. Thank you, Jeremy, my bud, for being here. Hell yeah. It was a pleasure. It was a blast. The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast. Thanks to Sam Sadomsky. You can follow him at Reap of Evil on Twitter. You can also read reviews of both Wiseblood and Dream Unending's latest releases at pitchfork.com. Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. James Trout at Rococo Punch is our technical producer. Ryan Domble is our showrunner. Jessica Grumalia is our music supervisor. 
I'm the editor of Pitchfork, Pooja Patel. Thanks for listening. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through with Vogue wherever you get your podcasts.